0: This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business, or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a profit center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more.
1: I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are. And Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels, located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to Gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free.
0: Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Tally Vogelstein, who's one of the founding investors at Avid Ventures. An early stage venture capital firm in New York City that invests in visionary founders building transformative businesses across consumer, building transformative businesses across consumer internet, fintech, and software in North America, Europe, and Israel. On this episode, we focus on how to invest at a global scale, breaking down different verticals for fintech, as well as Avid's overall fund strategy. Without further ado, here's Tally.
2: Callie, thank you so much for joining
0: me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So what got you into finance and venture capital?
1: I've always really loved math and been very entrepreneurial. I grew up as one of eight siblings and my siblings and I would always have math competitions and try to brainstorm startup ideas together. Two of my sisters recently started a company together. I've 15-year-old brother who started a woodwork, woodworking business recently, <laughs> given my love of math and business, I went to go to business school for undergrad. And I, I decided this when I was about 10 years old. My sister got into Penn School of Arts and Sciences when I was 10. And I decided I wanted to go to Warden for undergrad. So I did. And I studied finance and entrepreneurship. But before going, I actually did a gap year in Israel. And I did a semester at Hebrew University. And I volunteered for a semester and I heard a lot about the startup nation <laughs> being huge and growing in Israel, but I didn't actually get to experience that during my year. So I went back one summer when I was in school and I interned at a venture capital firm in Israel called Genesis Partners and thought it was the coolest job in the world, got back to school. My friends were applying for internships and in banking and consulting, but I, I did too as a backup, but I also applied to every venture capital firm in New York. Got an internship at Bessemer Venture Partners in New York, which led to a full-time job. And I quickly realized this was the perfect fit for me and later uh, joined Avid, which I'm excited to tell you more about. But there's been no looking back.
0: Since you were also very entrepreneurial, why did you decide to go on maybe like the VC side of things and the investing side as opposed to starting your own business?
1: I thought about it before I had some internships at startups, but Uh, I think it's so exciting to just get to see so many different business ideas, to get to meet and work with so many incredible founders and and just learn so much in so many different areas. Maybe I have a short attention span and don't like to stick to just one thing. It's something that I I did think about. And actually, I spent two years at Bessemer out of undergrad and decided I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial from there since Bessemer is an institutional firm that's been around for over 100 years. And I was thinking about potentially joining a startup or starting my own company. But I really loved investing and wanted to continue doing that. And so when I met my partner, Addie, and had the opportunity to join her in actually getting to build a fund, I got the best of both worlds. So now, even though I'm in VC, I do believe I've actually co-founded a startup. We have to go through the fundraising process, set up all the infrastructure and... Just, just do everything that founders need to do. So it's, it's been nice being able to empathize with founders and just to get to explore all of my interests.
0: It reminds me of a conversation I had with Elizabeth Yin, who's like, well, I actually kind of consider myself a sort of founder, to be honest with you, <laughs> because, you know, we're raising capital. We're, it's obviously slightly different business, but still very, very much, you have to be very, very entrepreneurial in order to do it. How did you meet your partner, Addy, and how did Avid come together?
1: Addie had gotten to know a large family office when she was at General Catalyst, and they had so much conviction in her that they wanted to back her so she could start her own fund. So she decided to do this. This is something I think everyone who uh, knew her at the time was not surprised that she decided to do this, but she ended up working with this family office plus one other and having a first close. Then she started to look for her first teammate. And um, a mutual friend who we both really trust introduced us right when lockdown began in March 2020. So we spent about 10 hours together over Zoom getting to know each other. And, and at, at the time, I had started to look for my next thing from Bessemer because I felt that I had gotten this institutional training, uh, learned from really smart investors who knew what they were doing and was ready to bet on myself and actually go build something. So I spent a ton of that time with Addy over Zoom met up in person, which was important to us, um, like a four or five-hour walk outside of New York, right like in the middle of the pandemic. And quickly after meeting Addie, I realized I wanted to work with her. She's pretty incredible. And I knew she would be a great mentor to me. I just really loved her vision for Avid, which was uh, just making the industry more collaborative and being very hands-on with founders and always putting founders first. So I was really excited to work with her. And um, joined her about a year ago exactly. So after closing these two Anchor LPs, we ended up bringing in a few other funds like General Catalyst, Foundry, Local Globe in Europe, a few others, plus about 50 to 60 handpicked strategic individuals who are execs at large companies, operators, founders, GPs at top funds who can actually be helpful to our portfolio companies. And we closed fund one earlier this year with $72 million. So that's that's the founding story. We're a team of two people and we've been moving quickly. We now have 15 portfolio companies and recently closed wow. our 10th investment of 2021. So I think we're just getting started.
0: That's amazing. I've talked to founders who've fundraised during the pandemic and kind of understanding the, the ups and downs, especially during that that early period. I'm just curious on the venture capital side, when you're fundraising, your first fund as well, what was it like doing so in the midst of a pandemic? Would, do you think that it was a lot more challenging than it would be maybe in a more quote unquote normal time?
1: Yeah, good question. And Addy is, is really uh, the person who was responsible for fundraising. I don't want to take any credit here, but She was fortunate to have closed these two anchor LPs in February, right before the pandemic started. And she actually uh, made a few investments around that time and uh, wrote these really great investment memos and had these proof points that she was able to find and get into these great companies. I think people understood that not everything is perfect or under your control and just had so much conviction in Addy and around the strategy, her ability to get into the best deals. And were also philosophically aligned with us. And I think that's very important. So after we closed our first two anchors, it made it easier to bring in all of these other investors. And then we started making all of these investments and having a portfolio that we could talk about and get investors excited about.
0: What is your strategy when it comes to how you actually de- deploy capital? What stage do you typically get involved in? And how do you think about the check size and also maybe your pro-rata strategy as well?
1: Yeah, great question. So we, we have a very unique strategy. We typically co-invest at or around the Series A stage once there are some proof points that things are working. We'll write a small check around 500 k to a million dollars. And then will be what we say is disproportionately helpful relative to our ownership to our founders so we can really earn what we believe is a privilege to write a larger check into a future round. And that larger check will be around 5 to $10 million. And so the idea here is that the $500K to $1 million check is not going to move the needle in our $72 million fund, but it'll hopefully position us to write that larger double-down check into our best companies. And that check Will move the needle, ideally. So, um, and, and the way that we do this is, we're, we're a team of two. So we have to be incredibly focused and disciplined. We have a wish list of companies that we um, have not yet invested in that we think we want to invest in. Who we try to get to know over time, add value to over time, and as as generalists. It's important to meet founders early, so we can actually develop a perspective around what they're doing that will help us move ten times faster when it's time to um, make an investment decision. Hopefully, just by getting to know them, by helping to make a bunch of biz dev introductions, they'll like us and and want us to work want to work with us because they see the value that we can bring. And then after investing, we we try to really double down on the value that we can provide to our founders, uh, so that they'll want us in for this larger check. The idea is to make about seven or so toehold investments per year out of fund one and have about 20 or so total, and then to have about seven or eight chunkier double down positions out of fund one and and to really dedicate a ton of time to um, each company that we work with. And Because uh, the way that we try to be disproportionately helpful is by acting as an outsourced strategic CFO. Uh, and really getting into the weeds of the data to help founders build this strategic growth model or KPI dashboard. will hopefully know when things are working very early and be able to make those decisions on whether we, we want to invest more. We developed this strategy around our strengths as growth investors.
0: Got it. How does this strategy? How has this fared? And how do you think about like today's current landscape? Of course, it seems like the prices for Series A. My word, it's pretty, pretty unbelievable. How are you thinking about the the market right now? And where's this strategy? Where has it been a advantage?
1: It's been a big advantage in getting into the best possible deals, the most oversubscribed, competitive rounds. We've been able to get into almost every uh, deal with, with the toehold check that we've um, made an offer for. And and this is because we're flexible. And I think we don't have to be extremely valuation sensitive for these toehold checks. We need to be more valuation sensitive for the double downs because that's where the majority of our capital is being deployed. So, so that's worked well. And because um, founders and co-investors really appreciate our value add in some cases, they've really like pounded the table to carve out allocation for Avid in their round. So founders have, in some cases, said, we want Avid in, we know that, now we're going to have to decide which uh, top tier lead investor we want to bring into the round for the larger check. So that's been nice. And then in other cases, lead investors, even those who do have strict ownership targets, have carved out 500 k to $1 million of their $20 million allocation to make room for Avid because they're giving up a million dollars of their $20 million check. And um, they know that we're going to provide a lot of value despite this pretty small ownership that we have. So, so that's been working well. And then to answer your question on pricing, this valuation, the market is pretty insane right now. However, <laughs> um, outcomes are a lot bigger than they've been in the past, particularly in categories like FinTech. And I know Bessemer, where I used to work, They recently published a bunch of their memos and Bessemer and every memo will include a scenario analysis. So you can look at uh, their memos for companies like Twilio, Shopify, Twitch, some other companies. And and I think there's real value there. I think Shopify is only going to become a bigger and bigger, more valuable company. So I think even though valuations are pretty insane compared to what they were around 2012 or even two years ago, Um, I think there's more value to be created. And especially now with COVID tailwinds that make many potential customers just much more receptive to digital options. And I think there's just so much opportunity to really uh, create value across so many different industries that are very antiquated. So. Hopefully, these valuations actually make sense. And I think even if they don't, even if there's going to be a correction, as long as we're able to invest in the absolute best companies, we're going to make money. And it's okay to pay up uh, a few months or a year or so ahead of traction just to secure allocation in the absolute best company.
0: Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you bringing up the Shopify example. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with Eric Paley, who said, VCs notoriously get market sizing wrong. And he brought up the example of like when Fitbit started, right? What was the wearables market back then? really wasn't much, right? But of course wearables have become such a big market now. And what you're looking for are markets that are small right now but, you know, have really really fast keggers or, you know, have really really fast growth rates. And I've also had other investors on the show that say I don't want to worry about TAM. I don't even want to think about TAM because almost because I know that I will get it wrong. With all this being said, since your fund is very focused on TAM and the market size How do you think about all these things? Because in the Shopify, for example, like they were thinking about the market size back then when the Series A happened. How do you think about what it takes and maybe what are maybe some of the elements or threads that you see that makes a market investable or you think it could get
1: big? We do think about Japan, as you mentioned, it's pretty critical to our model. However, we like to give companies a ton of credit for, uh, What does not exist at the time when we invest based on their vision, based on opportunities that we've seen for other similar companies like vertical software, for example. I think there's a huge opportunity to add payments as a new revenue stream to at least double the market size pretty instantly, like companies like Toast, as one example, POS system for restaurants. Originally, they were just selling software. And I believe... And I think this is public info. I believe today, about half, 50% of their revenue comes from payment processing. And now, recently, they've started to work on adding a bunch of financial products and services uh, offerings for their customers to just continue to grow market size. So I have this thesis that... It's not a unique thesis at this point. But Every company is or is becoming a fintech company by adding some payments or financial component. And so I think doing that can really increase a market size. And we'll give companies for credit for that. We'll like really think how big could this possibly get and try to dream a little. And if the team is, is really fantastic and customers love the product, I think there's a way to just add more over time to grow market size. And, and then um, we recently invested in a company called Oyster which is it's a competitor of Remote.com, Deal, Papaya Global. They're an HR platform for globally distributed teams. And so they make it super easy to hire an employee or contractor anywhere in the world. And because distributed work as a category is growing pretty exponentially, uh, we we came into this deal at a pretty high price, $475 million post. However, this is one where we really... And it was the Series B. We really don't need to squint to see how big this can get, even though based on the analysis I've run, I think this is about, I think before COVID, this was about a $20 billion industry. I think now it's a lot bigger. I think in a few years from now it's gonna be a lot bigger. And the fact that Addy and I would tell a bunch of our founders, hey, you know, Oyster exists. You don't have to actually set up your own entity and have this horribly frustrating experience to hire an employee in a foreign country. They would just light up our founders and they didn't realize something like this was possible. So I think that the fact that awareness is so low, yet demand is so high, makes it very clear that we're at an inflection point. And I think that's the most exciting time to invest in a new category. So it's nice when there's some evidence and some traction that proves there's a real market for this and then signs that we're at this really exciting point where the market's just going to take off and there's an exciting white space opportunity. Sometimes I'll start to think of ideas for the company that the founder might not have. So I need to be careful not to do that and (laughs) really just focus on what is the founder's vision for this business and is the team able to execute on this vision? And if the answers are yes to those questions, I'm willing to be very generous with my market sizing
0: estimate. I would say your focus is fintech, but I know as you say, um, so many companies are now going towards fintech. Ben Savage said when I had him on that the one misunderstood part about fintech is how massive it actually uh, can be and the actual potential it can be. But I'm curious within fintech, what do you see to be a lot of opportunity What kind of questions are you asking yourself, whether it be what are maybe new markets that maybe are ripe for disruption and and could use a fintech underlayer or what just overall, like what markets or verticals look interesting to you?
1: Yeah, good question. So I do believe that I am a generalist and every company is becoming a fintech company, which is why I'm a fintech-focused investor, I guess. But I really do try to meet the best founders early, let those founders get me excited about the market they're going after, and then do a bunch of work around that market to get excited. Some categories that I have gotten excited about for that reason are mental health. I think there are so many COVID tailwinds there. So many companies are growing so quickly in this space. And it's important to just figure out ways that these businesses can be differentiated and make your one bet there because you can't invest in competitive companies. So I've been spending a lot of time there. I've also been spending time in um, digital banking for underserved groups and recently invested in a company called Majority, which is a digital bank for immigrants. And um, I'm happy to talk more about this investment that I think immigrants, have been and immigrants is very broad. There are over 180 different immigrant communities that fall into this group, but immigrants broadly have been very underserved by financial institutions. And there's just this massive opportunity to uh, provide get 10x plus better product for them to help them with everything from international calling to sending money home to um, having a bank account uh, and just fulfilling all of their basic needs. So so this company majority helps them do that. And I think there are also interesting um, banking opportunities for for other underserved groups like freelancers, especially as that market continues to grow. And many freelancers, they'll love their job that they have and want to focus on on what they actually want to do rather than like the back office. Because if you start your own business, you have to worry about setting up the business, like dealing with payments, like invoicing, taxes... And all of that's a nightmare for many freelancers. And so I think there's a big opportunity to make this really easy for them and help them just focus on, on their passion and what they're good at. Uh, other categories I've been excited about, like distributed work broadly. I think the category is growing like crazy and there needs to be better tools, including like mental health tools to uh Support remote workers and make sure they have a great experience and are as productive as they can be.
0: When do you think, because it seems like everything is kind of getting verticalized, when do you think it makes sense for a company to focus on maybe one specific group of people that maybe might be underserved versus maybe take a bit more of a broad approach?
1: I think it comes down to the group that they're serving and how homogenous their needs are. And this company, Majority, as one example, uh, they've done a ton of research on their customers and they realized that Cubans in Miami are very different from Nigerians in Houston as one example. And so immigrants might sound like a specific group, but they're act- as I mentioned they're actually like over 180 different immigrant communities and so they're scaling from by, on a community by community basis to just provide a great customer experience to each group and there are many parts of their product, that can be repurposed for each community, but just a few tweaks that they have to make. And so I think their ability to really focus and provide a great experience to each specific group rather than focusing on this broad segment is really what sets them apart, especially when compared to many of these other digital banking for immigrants companies that have been popping up. So I think in other cases, everyone has the same needs. And why not just go after that mass market opportunity?
0: I really appreciate that example of majority because it shows to when it comes to focus and making sure you never isolate any of your customers or consumers. It reminds me a little bit... And I know this is quite different, but it reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with Mark Ganey, who's the founder of Strava. And he just focused on cyclists for like the first four or five years. And he wanted to make sure he didn't isolate that base. So he built a whole nother app just for runners. You know what I mean? And so I really, really like that. And I haven't heard that as much before because I've heard a lot of, you know, banking for banking for underserved groups, banking for, for immigrants. But I really appreciate your example about how to make sure you don't isolate people as well. That's super interesting.
1: And and the dream, the ideal is you you scale community by community or you scale from cyclists to runners and so on and so forth, and then start to see network effects across communities because maybe cyclists also really like to run or have family members who like to run and they'll share um, Strava with them for that reason. And and with majority, there are many um, Cubans in Miami who have family members or friends or like their cousin's husband uh, from a different community in another city and I think network effects will start to develop as they scale and have a product that works across communities.
0: When you're thinking about this as an investor side and you're thinking about scale, you're thinking about, okay, how big can this get? And when you're developing different communities and really penciling in, I'd imagine if you're almost becoming like a community manager, managing these and have these very, very different types of customers along the point of the way, it can also be challenging to scale, right?
1: Yeah, I think the key here is that the customers aren't very, very different. They just have somewhat different needs in how they prefer to send money and things like that. For example, certain communities uh, send mu- like, like to um, pick up cash for um, remittances and others like to send crypto, for example. And so I think majority will need to enable all of that. And then also they do have this clever customer acquisition approach where in each community that they scale to, they actually hire advisors who work for Cubans in Miami. They'll have um, Cubans in Miami from the community who speak the language, understand the culture on the ground in, in these shop and shops to help onboard customers and provide support and really connect with them and, and build trust and make this community built by the members of the community. So I think that's important. So I think the same strategy, the same process of hiring these advisors to be on the ground and have the same type of customer acquisition approach can scale across communities. we will just need to do it for every community that they enter. And then the product will be pretty similar because most immigrants, regardless of which group they're in, have the same basic needs of banking, sending money, calling home. And, and uh, that that is scalable. It's just some more minor differences that need to be um, developed for each community.
0: So as an investor, you're looking for, okay, if there are different subsegments, segments, what are maybe the features that are all that are similar? Hopefully you have maybe more similarities and differences, but then also making sure, of course, the differences with in your case, you know, how they bank or how they like to withdraw money um, or send money. Make sure you're, of course, have those features or, or, or have that as part of your stack. And so that makes sense. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's going to be really hard to do this, which is why I think, this company majority will actually develop a moat because the team is so uh, execution-oriented. And I believe this is the right team to pull it off if anyone's going to, which uh, makes me think that their customer acquisition strategy and their product is, is really defensible.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I know you also invest in a wide range of regions. you North America, South America, LATAM. You invest in Israel, Europe, What's your approach to investing in different regions? And do you ever think, okay, if this type of company is working in the U.S., could a similar type of company could work in Latam or in Israel or in Europe?
1: When we fundraised, we said that we would invest mostly in New York-based companies. We're two people in New York, but would also invest throughout North America, Europe, and Israel. And I think what we've realized is that this world is so global where a founder is based is not so meaningful. We, we originally said we were going to avoid Bay Area companies because we're two people and we're not based there. And the Bay Area is so well covered, but it's just not so relevant. if It's not so clear if a company, if a founder is based in San Francisco, that they're like a Bay Area company because the team could be spread out all over the world. So we're really just trying to invest in the best founders regardless of where they're based. And I think like with Israel there and and with other places like Mexico or Latin America, broadly, or Europe, there's a lot to like uh, versus the US. I think there are also a lot of great companies coming out of of the US and New York in particular. But with Israel, what's nice is that the country is very small. It's about the size of New Jersey. And so when founders start a company, they have to think about going global from day one and therefore there are many very large business opportunities coming out of Israel. And then also I, I have a Addy, and I both feel um, personally closely connected to Israel. I'm actually going there in a few days. Um, and, and they're just really great founders there too. So, so that's been a focus for us. I think in Latin America, there are so many white space opportunities and certain business models that can be copied to some degree from um, the US to Latin America. I think like within e-commerce, uh, there are a lot of business models we've seen in Asia, in particular, that um, might be able to work quite well in Latin America. But I think you really need to like be in the market, talk to customers, understand what will work because things are different there. I think on average, consumers might have a lower willingness to pay. There's also much lower uh, credit card adoption versus the US, and that will impact how well opportunities work. For certain categories, like, like iBuying, as one example, um, there have been some very large companies like, like Open Door or Zillow, as example, uh, that have come out of the U.S. And the business model is really tough because they're very capital intensive, margins are very tight. It's hard to differentiate in the U.S. However, in Latin America, there's no MLS, and so there's this big opportunity to build a powerful data set to enable pricing transparency, access to unique homes, to keep costs lower because the cost of things like renovation will be lower and therefore margins can be a lot higher. And so we've seen companies emerge like Hobby in Colombia or Loft in Brazil or Flat in Mexico that actually have much better product market fit, in my opinion, than like Open or Zillow, which were much larger companies today in the U.S. And so that's encouraging. So the model is different. Things need to be done very differently. You need to collect a ton of data to make it work. You don't really need to do that in the US. But the opportunity, I think, is more attractive. So I'm excited about a lot of white space opportunities in Latin America where we've seen business models work in the US. There's a very crowded market here. Companies have raised at very high prices. But In Latin America, there's just a lot less competition. And if you can find verticals where uh, that might be more attractive rather than less there, given uh, regional dynamics, I I think that's worth uh, looking into. And and then Europe is another area I want to talk about because we've now made four investments in Europe. There's incredible engineering talent in Europe, which I think is very interesting. And like I'm based in New York, so the time difference isn't so bad. So I've been spending a lot of time uh, looking at European businesses, and something to think about there is regulation. The regulatory environment there is very different than it is in the U.S., and and also, you often need to expand on a country-by-country basis. And so for a U.S. company to enter Europe, uh, they might have some challenges based on regulation and, and this expansion dynamic and so forth. We recently invested in a company which is competitive with a company called Hotmart, which is in um, Latin America and the US. They've done very well. They acquired a business called Teachable in the US um, and have been scaling here. And they're a creator economy platform that helps solopreneurs sell digital products. And they've been trying to get into Europe for a while. They've hired many team members there, but they've been struggling because that handling is very complicated for their business model in Europe. And we invest in a company that has been focused on Europe from day one. They've they've handled this. They know the regulatory environment very well. And so it sets them up to compete with this very large, successful business who's actively aggressively trying to enter Europe. So I think starting in Europe from day one can be a big advantage and Investing in businesses in Europe where there's like a lookalike in the U.S. can be attractive.
0: What's one thing you would change about venture capital?
1: I think Addy and I are trying to change this. We're trying to make the industry more collaborative. I think at times it can be a bit sharp elbowed where investors are competing to win different deals. However, we have uh, a collaborative approach. We love co-investing. We love teaming up with other teams to just help support our companies. In a more efficient way, and I hope um, I, I hope others start to do this too. Some some do it very well. I think it's a win win for everyone involved, and most importantly, the founders.
0: Do you think that this might change if you were leading rounds? Meaning because since you're leading rounds, you're it, it, it then I feel like it, it becomes more competitive um, since you're trying to win the deal and, and and that sort of thing. Do you think that that there is maybe a bit of a change when or if that does happen?
1: Absolutely. It would be harder to be collaborative. Today, we're co-investing. As we start to raise larger funds, there's certainly a chance that we'll start to lead or co-lead more rounds. However, it'll be important for us to keep this collaborative approach and to not cut investors out of rounds if we think they can actually be helpful to founders. And if it doesn't make sense for us to lead, then we won't lead. And so for example, today we're not a brand we're, we're a new fund, so we don't have the same sort of brand name power that like a Bessemer or a General Catalyst or Sequoia has. And so I think it often makes sense to include those types of investors in the round because that can really help with hiring, with acquiring customers. However, if there are smaller investors or investors who want to write a small check in the round and can provide a lot of value. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so even if we get to a point where we start to lead rounds, if we think including a certain brand name firm or a fund with functional area expertise or like vertical specific expertise that could be helpful, then I think um, we absolutely will try to. And then also post-investment. I think just collaborating around ways to help the company on the biz dev side, on the modeling side rather than just doing the same work that other investors are doing is just a more efficient way to spend time and to add value to companies.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So, and I looked at your list on your website before and I want to read a bunch of them now. I I tried coming up with books that are, are not on there yet. Professionally, The Upstart by Brad Stone is a book about Uber and Airbnb. Have you read it?
0: I have not, but I'm so excited because I don't think anyone's mentioned it.
1: I loved it. It's a business book, but it's such a page turner. I read in about a day and I think it, Brad Stone does a great job explaining uh, how some success, two very successful businesses got started. And it's so crazy to think that Uber and Airbnb actually worked, that people would be comfortable letting like total strangers go into their cars or their homes. And so this has taught me, like one, I really like learning about different business models. Two, um, crazy ideas can actually work with the right execution. And and three, the book um, talks a lot about the regulatory hurdles that these two companies had to overcome. It seemed like the, the businesses would never work because of regulation. However there was such demand for what um, Uber and Airbnb were offering that the regulatory hurdles could be overcome. And I think that's important to remember as a consumer investor in particular, that if people want the product, there's a way to make it work.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, it it uh, reminded me of actually a podcast episode I listened to um, with David Sachs. And he was saying how when legally something is in the gray area, you know, then you can go for it. Because if you're able, and the goal is to build up enough consumer demand, where then legislation changed, or then it becomes more clear, and it kind of tilts in your favor. I think that Uber is an, Uber and Lyft are such a great example um, of that. Do you happen to have another book that impacted you personally or no?
1: I read The Silent Patient recently, and I loved it. It has nothing to do with my work, and this reminded me that I really love to read and just totally disconnecting from work is a very healthy thing that we should all try to do more I typically try to read business books when I read so that I can be productive and just continue learning but it's so important to, to actually take breaks and I also wanted to mention this book because I think everyone should read it it's really good
0: <laughs> awesome awesome well I am so excited to add these to the book list this is great uh, and I appreciate you checking out the book list that's really kind of you what's the best piece of advice that you've received
1: I think I was watching an episode of Shit's Creek recently and uh, the advice I got there was nobody cares. Nobody cares about little things. There are so many little things I do like forgetting to turn on my Zoom virtual background when my room is very messy and freaking out about it and spending a long time just worrying about it. But um, nobody cares about these little things. And it's important to just like focus on what matters in life and Um, not get too bogged down by little mistakes.
0: I love that. I think that's a great piece of advice. What's your one piece of advice for any founder who is building?
1: Right now in this increasingly distributed world, I think burnout is real. Mental health issues are real. And it's so important to take breaks, take vacation, encourage your teammates to do the same to help build a healthy company culture where everyone can be productive and, and truly creative
0: tally this has been so much fun thank you so much for your time
1: yeah thank you this been a blast
0: and there you have it it was such a blast having tally on i hope you all enjoyed that as much as i did now let's hear from rohan from gorgeous Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e commerce focused help desk. We are an omni channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers Uh, things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media. Um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgias is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, And what we do at Gorgias is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So, what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms Shopify, Magento 2, and Big Commerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about seven thousand brands all across the spectrum from early stage e- uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international.
0: That's awesome. So you're able to with gorgeous to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with, with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media. SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we Help brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective.
0: So you have over seven thousand customers, which is amazing seven thousand brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous?
2: It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that you know they sit on Shopify or, or Big Commerce or Magento too, and that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets a uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using gorgeous on the brand side so we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform we're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume and and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are and for that reason it generally in combination with all the automation we build in it tends to be very cost effective for brands and not only are they saving potentially on that side of things but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the
2: holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time or you're not getting them the right answer or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things or even one of these things is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long-term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but One of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the D2C environment with brands, is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can... Bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. um, And we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to for example, ask about shipping or or status of their order. And that's just one example, but there are a number of other ways that that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There's only so much that you can do with with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns, hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM.
0: No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interact with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. I mean, it goes so far. And your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet, um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um idea and also really cool because then you get then you can also influence a uh, repeat rate. And at the same time if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.